I'm uh, so grateful to be able to be with you today. Um, <clears throat> as a missionary in Poland and having uh, quite a few local churches in the USA who partner together with us, most of my life is lived over there, uh, far from you guys, and every few years I get a chance to come back to the States and travel around and visit um, these churches, you guys and others that uh, partner together with us. And I, I just, I, I think that you know this, but I just want to once again say your role in partnering together with us to do missions in Poland is absolutely necessary. Uh, two things that you guys do for us that we just can't live without is financially supporting us and praying for us. Um, you know, we have big goals in Poland. Our, our, the plan isn't small. We would like to see Poland changed. We would like to see churches planted. We'd like to see men trained for the ministry. We're trying to publish good, work, good resources and get those into the hands of Polish pastors. And I could go through each of those steps, but each of those things takes money. Uh, if we have a little bit of money, we can translate one or two things in the next year. If we have a lot of money, we can translate 10 or 20 things in the next year. Same with these young men who've been trained. Uh, about $5,000 a year for them to go have a year of tuition, for them to go to the school up in Scotland where we've sent them. If you don't have the $5,000, you can't send them. If you have the money, you can send them. So thank you for your financial support of us over the years. Thank you for giving to the church, and then the church sends that on to us. And I'd encourage you to keep giving. Uh, we need it. It's, it's, it's just a material thing, but missions doesn't work without it. And, and secondly, prayer. Uh, if we're just going to Poland with this plan that we have of these are the steps we're going to follow for churches to be uh, planted and, and, and ministers to be trained and people to be saved, and we're just counting on our brilliant plan to, to do this, there's, there's nothing, nothing going to happen. We need miracles. We need the Holy Spirit to meet with us and empower do the work in people's hearts so that unregenerate people see Christ for who he is, fall in love with him, come to Christ, and not just have, you know, 40 individuals who have all come to Christ, but then those 40 people decide to covenant together and work together in a local church. And you know that's not easy, and only the Holy Spirit can do that. So, um, it, you know, it, it just gets discouraging at times. Fr fruit in Poland is sometimes very slow. You go years with just a, one or two people or none. Um, and knowing that we have partners that are praying for us is extremely encouraging. Um, so I want to express gratitude for your prayers for us and your financial giving. And I want to request, will you please continue to pray for us? Please continue to financially support us. We need it. Philippians chapter 1, um, an amazing chapter. I'm going to try to go through the whole chapter. Obviously, we won't talk about every single verse. We don't have time to do that. But we are going to kind of make it through the chapter. Um, I have three daughters. I get to be their dad and kind of their pastor. They've heard me preach hundreds and probably thousands of sermons. And uh, a while ago, I was up there preaching a sermon, and through the sermon at one point I said, this is my favorite passage in Scripture. After the service, one of my daughters came out to me and said, uh, Dad, you said today that that's your favorite 
uh, passage of Scripture, but I know you've said that about other passages. <laughs> How are we supposed to understand that? That's true. I've done it on a number of occasions, and we're going to have to add Philippians chapter 1 to that list. It's just tremendous. Paul uh, has planted this church. He's, he's an apostle. He loves them. They love him. And he, in this chapter, opens up like we don't see him do in too many places in the New Testament. And he talks about himself and he talks about his own suffering. And for some reason, I find that refreshing. Not just to have Christians around me who uh, say the sorts of words like, God has not left us, he's with us, there's reason to rejoice, there's reason to have hope, let's continue on in the faith. We need that, that's helpful, but also to have a fellow Christian say, this is difficult, I'm struggling, I have suffering in my life. Uh, Paul does that in this chapter, you'll see. At one point he says, things are so difficult, I'm not really sure right now if it'd be better, be better for me to live or to die. Um, that's, that's a pretty telling statement. Um, However, uh, this epistle, Philippians, is ca often called the epistle of joy. So although he opens up and talks about his suffering, as we read it, we're going to read all of chapter 1 here in a minute, you'll see that he talks about his joy many times in the chapter. He talks about that what he's doing, he's doing for their joy. So this chapter has like two main points, two themes and the two themes are this, suffering and joy. Those are two interesting main points in a, in a chapter. So let's try to go through it. I'll read the whole chapter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. What a cool phrase. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's talking about being arrested, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful lab labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray one more time. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we are completely dependent on you. We need you to meet with us this morning. God, we thank you for the promise that when we gather together, you're with us. We pray, God, that you would do your work in each of our hearts today. Uh, thank you for your word, and thank you for your promises that through your word, you powerfully work in us. And we ask with a sort of confidence, knowing that you will do it, we ask that you do your work in our hearts now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A baker bakes, a sailor sails, a farmer farms. Who you are affects what you do. At the beginning of these letters, we see that Paul often wants to talk about identity. In Christianity, our actions flow out from who we are. So it's essential that we have a clear understanding of who we are, that each of us knows this new identity we have in Christ. Paul introduces himself in verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants? That's the word he starts with? That's how he opens his introduction? I don't think there are many people in our modern world who are going to use a word like that to start their introduction. Don't all of us want to use an impressive title to explain our occupation, who we are, what we do? It seems like everyone has an impressive title these days. No matter what the occupation is, the title's really impressive. Director, manager, executive manager, team leader, CEO. I don't even think we have assembly line workers or secretaries anymore. <laughs> Who in the modern world is going to open their introduction the way Paul does? Hello, I'm a servant. Right from the first verse, from the first words, we read something that's pretty shocking. 
But actually, our translation doesn't help us feel how shocking these words are. Because that word that's been translated servant should very possibly be translated slave. In the Roman Empire in the first century, the difference between being a free man or a slave is incredibly important. This is the first and most important factor we must understand when we're meeting a new person. Is this a free man I'm dealing with, or is this a slave? And Paul wants everyone to know from the very beginning, he's not free. His life doesn't belong to himself. He's been bought with a price. He's one who's under authority. He has a Lord over him. He doesn't decide for himself. He receives orders from a Lord. The words in the Bible matter, and this word slave is worth us all meditating on a bit. In the very same verse, we have the extremely important word saint. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The word saint means set apart. So they're all the people of the world, and then there's another category, those who have been set apart. They're set apart for God to be his special people. They've been purchased by Jesus Christ. The word saint means they're not common. They're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, but they're also sons and daughters of God. And we'll see in the chapter that they've been set apart for a purpose, for a mission. God's going to use them in his plans for the world. Paul goes on to express his great love for the people in this congregation. Many touching verse, uh, words that he uses in those first like 11 verses, kind of a long introduction. In verses 3 and 4, he reassures them that he regularly prays for them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I'd like to point out that he doesn't just pray for them really generally, like God bless that congregation in Philippi, but he has specific prayer requests that he prays for them. And in this first chapter, he tells them what those requests are. As we pray for our loved ones, your spouse, your children, your, your, the other members at church, let's not just be praying very general prayers for them. Let's ask God for specific things. And if you don't know what, we can just plagiarize Paul. Let's just look at his prayers and use those to pray for the people that we love. Let's take just a couple minutes to go through his prayer that he lays out in verses 9 through 11. We can see in this prayer that there's a definite progression. The first thing he prays for them is kind of foundational. The next thing builds on it. The next thing builds on it. The next thing builds on it. Um... He says this, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. His whole prayer starts with love. And he doesn't pray that this love would be given to them. It appears that they already have it. 
At the moment of new birth, we're given new hearts. And one aspect of this new heart that you were given at new birth means that you begin to love things you didn't love before. Jesus's very heart has been put into us and we begin to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. Apparently at the moment of new birth, this love of God that's been poured into us is not automatically perfectly mature because Paul is praying that this love that they have would increase, would mature, would grow. He writes, that your love may abound. And then he adds, more and more. Did you ever notice or feel that sometimes modern Christianity can feel like they would like us to be something like Stoics? Not to have many emotions, not to get too worked up, have any high highs or low lows? Paul doesn't seem to be worried about that. He wants them to be more tender, to be more loving. For this love that's in their hearts, things they love greatly, things they hate greatly, he wants it to grow, not become more, I don't know the word. (laughs) His prayer is not only that their love would grow, but that it would become more mature. That your love may abound more and more, and then he adds, with knowledge and discernment. A love that is discerning. He's saying, have more love. And then he's saying, and don't love just everything. There are plenty of things that we should not love. It seems to me that the current culture we're living in acts as if love is always good and hate is always bad. Biblically, it's not that simple. Let's say that we have two women here as our illustrations, and woman one right now is feeling a great love, and woman two right now is feeling a great hatred, which one is righteous? We don't know. You've not given us enough information. It just simply depends. It depends on what they're loving and what they're hating. We have these verses in the Bible. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. We have this verse in the Bible. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Hating is not always bad. Loving is not always good. This prayer is interesting. Paul's praying that their love would grow It would be more powerful, it would be stronger, and he's praying that this love would be more discerning, that they would recognize what they should love and what they shouldn't. He's praying that what they love will change. If you think about that, that's really good news for us. What you love today, what you like today, what you prefer today doesn't have to be that way for the rest of your life. Paul is talking about something that's even more fundamental to who we are than our minds. God has revealed to us that an important aspect of the Christian life is that we have this renewal of our mind. But Paul is talking about a change at even a deeper level than that, a change in what you like 
in what you prefer. Let's say that there's a child who will only eat french fries and ketchup and nothing else. That's not very good. We should hope that one day that child will have enough discipline to force themselves to eat some vegetables and meat. But that's not our ultimate goal. We don't want the child to only just one day be able to force themselves to eat some vegetables and meat. We hope that one day the child will enjoy vegetables and meat. As we are training up our children, it's not our goal that they would just simply grit their teeth and submit to the standard. We hope that they grow to love the standard. Our preferences, our tastes can change. And in most of our situations, probably should change. I think we're too quick to give ourselves an excuse. Ah, reading theology books just isn't really my thing. Not for me. Going to the Bible study group or the, 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 the prayer meetings, not really my thing. Don't really like it. Okay, fair enough. But there's good news in this chapter. The things that you don't like right now could change maybe should change. But the progression goes on. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. He prays for a love that will affect their discernment and that this discernment will literally change their life, will affect the choices they make, will change their behavior. So that on that day when they stand before Christ and Christ looks at them, their life will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So far we've seen three steps in the progression. A change of heart that leads to a discerning mind. This discerning mind will cause a person to use their tongue their hands, their feet, their minds, their very lives for the things that God loves. What a beautiful prayer. A completely changed life, all brought about from new loves in this person's heart. However, that beautifully changed life is not the end of his prayer. It's not the final step. It's the penultimate goal of his prayer. There's one more step. Look at verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. From the day of your new birth, brother and sister, to the day that you'll stand before your maker, you are being gloriously transformed. Not just on the outside, not just new actions, but from the inside out. Your heart, your mind, your actions. And who will get the glory for this beautiful transformation? The one who's responsible for the transformation. Is there any habit in your life that you feel that can never change? You've wanted it to change. Maybe even for years, you've wished that it could change. And it just seems like you're powerless to change that thing about you. Helpless. God can change sinners. God does change sinners. Only God can do it. And only he will get the glory. 
That's why Paul isn't just preaching to the people at Philippi, isn't just writing letters to the people of Philippi, but he's praying, God, do this transformation in them. Only you can do it, and may you get the glory. We should be filled with hope when we look at ourselves and see the things that we would like to have changed. Let's have hope. We serve an all-powerful God. He's at work in your life if you're a Christian. He's making you beautiful for your good and for his glory. That's from the beginning to verse 11. In verse 12, Paul starts to get autobiographical. And he explains that this glorious work that God is doing in and through his people is painful for the people. This glorious, beautiful transformation that he is doing is painful for the people. God's work in and through Paul is nothing less than suffering. Starting in verse, I'll read 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he says, my arrest and my imprisonment are going to be used by God for the advance of the gospel. So he focuses on a very positive result of his imprisonment. But we're allowed, as we're reading it, to notice that this had to be difficult for him. Suffering is involved. Look down at verse 17. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So apparently there are people inside the church. We don't know if they're actually born again or not, but they are inside the church. And they are using Paul's imprisonment as something they can use for personal gain to lift themselves up in the congregation. And not only that, but somehow they're trying to use it to afflict Paul. Not just to lift themselves up, but to also hurt him. Can you imagine what what a blow that would be? Look down at verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Have you ever been that low? At a place where you're looking at things and wondering, at this point, it's not clear to me if it would be better to live or to die. Maybe you have. In verse 18, Paul says, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I want that. I want whatever Paul had. In great suffering, in his plans all being ruined, he rejoices. Let's take a couple minutes to look at that. He immediately points out two good fruits that have come from his arrest. Now that he's been arrested, these guards have heard the gospel people that wouldn't have heard it otherwise. And secondly, his arrest has caused other men in the church to proclaim the gospel more boldly. These two things help us understand some things about Paul's joy. The ultimate goal of his life 
is not wrapped up in his personal comfort, wealth, fulfillment, his plans. But his goal, the goal of his life is the building of the kingdom of God. Paul's goal is the spread of the gospel. His life's mission is Christ's name, that the name of Christ be known and lifted up. There is a direct link between Paul's goal and Paul's joy. C.S. Lewis writes, pretty well-known quote, do not let your happiness be based on something that you can lose. Brother and sister, God is building his church. He will build his church. If you commit your life to that mission, the spread of the gospel, the lifting up of Jesus Christ, then you will be able to find joy both in times of health and sickness, in times of wealth and poverty, in times of fellowship and loneliness. Your ambition in life is linked to your happiness. Look at verse 20. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His hope is absolutely unshakable. He has complete confidence that Christ will be lifted up through his life. Either way it goes, either through his life or through his death. And since he has this confidence that Christ will be glorified one way or the other, he can rejoice. I can imagine that at this point in the sermon, someone could push back against what I'm implying. They could say, okay, but he's an apostle. Through his life, the church was going to be built up. Somehow through his death, the church was going to be built up. I'm just a normal Christian. I'm just an average guy. I don't really see how his example applies to my life, my joy. I would respond by saying that both in the Old and New Testaments, God has made it very clear that he loves to use the young, the unknown, the weak, the sick, the limited, those that no one would expect him to use. His kingdom will not be built by a handful of heroes doing a handful of great heroic acts. No, it won't work that way. The kingdom of God will be built through millions of unknown Christians. There are two institutions that God has ordained to build his kingdom, the family unit and the local church. Of course, it's a glorious thing when two young Christians go off and plant a new family. Of course, it's a glorious thing when a small group of Christians go off and plant a new church in a community that doesn't have a church. But for most of us, we're already in a family. We're already in a local church. The primary ways that you can give your life for the building of the kingdom of God, give your life so that Christ will be lifted up, is to pour yourself into your family and into your local church. Give up your life. Spend it like something to be spent. You've got 80 years, 90. Use it. 
pour it out for your family and your local church. That's how his kingdom will grow. These are not little unimportant tasks. They're world-changing. It's a glorious thing when a husband takes upon himself the responsibility of leading his family. It's a glorious thing when a wife takes upon herself the responsibility of following the lead of her husband. Children, give up your lives to serve your siblings and your parents. Teenager, use your life, pour it out in order to serve your immediate family. Your tongue, use it to encourage, to give life-giving words. Use your hands, your time to cook and clean. Use your attitude to bring joy to your family. Use your tongue for something bigger than you. No local church is perfect, but we're all called to choose a local church, submit to the elders there, and pour ourselves into that congregation. What Paul says about himself in this passage, to remain in the body is for your sake a more necessary thing, that's not just true of great Christians, of apostles or pastors. Every member of the body of Christ is essential to the health of the body. I mean you. Your family needs you. Your local church needs you. Commitment to family and the local church are the foundations of the Christian life. And in these seemingly mundane and unspectacular commitments, we join ourselves to the goal of the church of Jesus Christ across the continents and across the centuries. We can have all confidence and say together with our brother Paul, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not true that suffering is unbearable. Senseless suffering is unbearable. Suffering for no purpose is unbearable. But Christians have an ability to bear suffering with an inner peace and joy that those who are observing us will never understand because we know that all of our suffering has a purpose. It will be used by God, either in our own sanctification or for the good of his church in general. We know that he loves us and he would not allow suffering in the lives of his children if he didn't have a good reason for it. Okay, so we've made it through Two-thirds of the chapter, the last third we'll go through pretty quickly. Let's take a couple minutes to look at it. I'll read verse 28. Probably my favorite verse in the chapter. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What's the clear sign? What is he saying? This is a clear sign to them. The fact that we're not frightened in anything is the clear sign. 
of their destruction and of our salvation. Imagine that you're up on a hillside and you're looking down into a valley and you can see that a battle is about to take place. And on one side, there's 100 soldiers and on the other side, there's 5,000 soldiers. It just looks like the 100 have no chance at all. And as you're watching and you can see the 100 soldiers, it looks like they're not worried at all. They're eating the sack lunches their wives have packed for them. They're telling jokes and slapping each other on the shoulder. And you're wondering, what's going on there? And then the two armies begin to get nearer and nearer to each other. And the whole time, the hundred soldiers are just marching forward with a confidence. Peace, joy. At some point, I propose to you that even the 5,000 soldiers are going to start thinking, do they know something we don't know? Why are they so happy? What's going on here? Let that be a picture of us as Christians in this world that we live in. Because the truth is, we know something that they don't know. We're not orphans here. We have a father who fights our battles for us. We're not alone. Paul gives us an example of how to live in suffering and then he gives us words. He teaches us through his life example and through words how we're to behave. And he says, not frightened in anything. Maybe the world will notice our peace and begin to think, why do they have that deep peace and joy when it looks like things are going so bad for them? Let us go out into the troubles of this world with a stable peace because we belong to an almighty God. May our peace be obvious to those who are watching us. And let's conclude with verse 29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul says, it's been granted to you. So that, that means this was given to you as a gift. Two things, actually. He says, not because you've earned them, but for Christ's sake, these two gifts have been given to you. The first one, that you believe in him. Brother or sister, if you believe today, that was a good gift given to you by God. You may not know that that was given to you as a gift because there was a day when you chose to believe in Christ. But that's why God has given us the Bible. So he can explain to us things that we don't know. And that belief that you have, praise God, he gave you as a gift. But also this, the suffering that you have, it was given to you by a father. There are those in the church today who would try to Interpret the whole Bible in such a way that neither of those gifts come from God. But Paul rejoices that they do. And it helps him rejoice in his suffering. Because he knows this was given to him by God. He believes that not only is healing used by God. Not only is wealth used by God. Not only those who are strong and powerful are used by God. But our God is a God who uses sickness and poverty as well as health and riches. Paul rejoices that his suffering is not 
senseless. He rejoices that he is being used for a purpose. He's being used by God. He says with confidence, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What we read in the first verse of the chapter, that Paul views himself as a slave, is essential if we have any chance of understanding the rest of the chapter. Paul looks at his life in such a way as if even his very life doesn't belong to himself. A common perspective in the culture that we live in is that almost everything exists for me. The money, the house, the job, the food, my school, my friends, even my spouse, maybe even my kids, everything for one ultimate goal, my happiness, that I would be fulfilled. In great contrast to that, Paul lays out his worldview in this chapter, that the house, the school, the money, his health, his body, his time, his talents, his strength, they don't belong to him. They're not to be used for him. They're all to be used for his Lord and for his goals. Brother and sister, you don't exist for one little personal goal. You belong to the church, the body of Jesus Christ. You've been called out from the world and you have the privilege of taking part in God's eternal plan, which serves a glorious, great purpose. Give your life to this purpose and your life will not be wasted and none of your suffering will be wasted. Let's rejoice together with our brother Paul that we're slaves of Christ and we live and we suffer and we die for the glory of our Lord. Let us stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters around the world and over the centuries and let us pour out our lives for the glory of God alone. Amen.